Good morning. How are we doing today? Good. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and get those out. We're going to be in Luke chapter 15. We're going to be in Luke chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, that is okay. There should be a hardback black one somewhere around you. Feel free to use that. Um, and the words should be on the screen behind me as well if you want to follow along there. Um, and while you're finding your place, getting comfortable, I just want to introduce myself for those of you that may not know who I am. Uh, my name is Ian. I'm the student pastor here um, at FBC. And I just want to say welcome. We are so glad you are here with us today. Thank you for joining um, our church family. I just want to always take a reminder and say no matter where you're at, if you're a guest, you've been here a while, just know we're, we're not a perfect people. Uh, we don't have it all together. We're still trying to figure out this thing called life. And we're entrusting our lives to the one who, who had who has figured it out, who created it, which is Jesus. So my hope for all of us today, whether you, whether you have met Jesus or you've been walking with him for years, that we could come back to know him as he is in our time in God's word today. Um, but with all that said, we're just going to jump right in. We have a lot to cover today. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 15. We're going to read verses 1 and 2, and then I'm going to pray and we're going to jump in, okay? So this is Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1, and the word of God says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much just for an opportunity where we as a, as a people, as a, as a family, as brothers and sisters um, who come from different walks of life, going through different struggles, carrying different Burdens, carrying different guilts and shames into the room today, different, different things that they wish they could let go of and leave behind. And God, I just pray that we were able to, this morning, rest them all at your feet. We can leave them at your feet. And Father, I pray that, above all, God, we would meet you today. Not who we think you are, not who we think you should be, not who we feel you are, but God, who you are who you revealed yourself to be. And God, may we receive your word with a glad heart, with an open heart, with open minds and a humble spirit. Help us to understand clearly what you were trying to teach us. We are not here by accident, God. And Jesus, may your words and your name be remembered and not mine. And it's in your name that we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Well, about a month or two ago, um, the students... Myself, we were going through and, and looking at a particular statement made by a theologian named A.W. A. Tozer. He, said, he says this, he says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when you think about God, when I think about God, is the most important thing about us. And I know some of you might read that and you're like, okay, man, I think there are several things that are important about me, but I don't know if I would say it's that. I don't know if what I think about God is something I would say is the most important thing about me. And I, I know there could be different disagreements with that, but I, let me share with you why I, I actually think um, he's correct. I fully agree with what Tozer has to say about this. And the reason why I agree with that is because what you believe about God, whatever your thoughts are, whatever your affections are, whatever your feelings are towards him, good or bad, ultimately affects every single other area of your life. It affects how you treat other people. It affects how you it affects how you work your job. It affects how you run a business. It affects how you parent. It affects how you operate as a husband or a wife. It affects how you manage your finances. It can affect how you coach. All of these ultimately come from what we think about God. 
what we think about God. It all emanates from our thoughts about God. So I agree with Tozer when he says, hey, the most important thing about us, you and I this morning, is what we think about God. And I think this is important because everybody in the room today comes in with their own opinions, their own thoughts, and their own experiences in regards to how they feel about God, right? Everybody in the room today carries in their own affections, their own experiences, their own maybe memories or thoughts associated with God, good or bad, whatever you think about him. And then it thus affects how you think he thinks about you. So if this is true, and I, I, I firmly believe it is, this is something that I want us to talk about because it dramatically affects how we treat other people. It affects how we view God. It affects how we view heaven. And it affects how we view salvation. And for those of you who think I'm a crazy person, let me give an example. Um, a couple of years ago, I was hanging out with some friends in my Merida graduation party, just hanging out with some old high school buddies. And one of the guys just decided he wanted to share us, uh, with us about a movie he just saw. And the whole point of the movie was apparently some, some demons got loose and they were terrorizing people. And then you had the, the protagonist, main character, was a demon slayer. Um, so we, the whole point of the movie was him killing demons and then Climax was killing the big baddie demon. And then that, that was the movie. Now those of you might hear that and be like, Ian, you hang out with weird people. And then I would tell you, you need to stop being so judgmental. Um, but his whole, his whole point for this was, man, that would be awesome. Like, I would totally want to be a, a demon slayer. Like, why? Why? And, it, and it's because he, he fully believed, man, if I, if, I was a, if I slayed demons, I would definitely get into heaven then. Like, you know God's letting somebody into heaven if they're, if they're slaying demons. That's like varsity Christian, right? Now, I didn't want to get into a theological debate then at the time, but there's actually a text in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus shares this story. There's going to be a day that comes where people are going to approach him and say, Jesus, we, we prophesied in your name. We did many mighty works in your name. We cast out demons in your name. And Jesus says, uh, I don't know who you are. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Because, I mean, because you'd think, right? Like, if I'm casting out demons, I'm on board. I, I figured it out. Surely, I'm getting into heaven then. But, no. And that's just one example of, the, of a buddy of mine who just felt God was this way. Who just thought that's what Christianity is all about. And he completely missed it. He just assumed it. So, my hope for us today, knowing we all carry different opinions, thoughts, affections, assumptions towards God, I want us to get back to the heart of who he really is as he revealed himself in his word. I want us to meet the God of the Bible, not who we want him to be, not how we think he is, not how we think or feel he should be, but who he truly is as we can clearly see his character in his word. Okay, so jumping in today. With that being the goal, we're going to take a look at Luke chapter 15, because I believe it'll really help us do this. Um, we're going to be jumping into Luke chapter 15. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter, and we're going to be talking about primarily a story that everybody in the room probably knows, whether you're a Christian or not, um, called the prodigal son. Now, before you hear that and think, oh, good, I can leave now. I've heard this story a billion times. Um, one, I relate. I, if I were you, I would totally be thinking the same thing. But... I'm, I'm, I'm going to take a guess and say that I'm going to be illuminating something about the text that I believe has been ignored for a long time. So hang with me a little bit here. And that doesn't mean I'm changing the scriptures. I'm not twisting anything, I promise. I'm just bringing to light something I believe has been ignored from the majority of the teachings about this text, okay? So 
Um, and also, I want to preface this, this the, the thought coming from this is not original to me. I want to be a man of integrity there. A lot of it comes from um, a book called Prodigal God by Tim Keller after the sermon. If you want further study or understanding on this subject, I highly recommend reading that book. Okay, jumping into Luke chapter 15, we're going to start with verses 1 and 2, not only because it's the start of the chapter, but... Um, if we leave out verses 1 and 2 and we try to talk about all the parables, at best we're proof texting and we're not able to accurately portray and understand what Jesus was trying to communicate in this text. Because who Jesus' audience is here dramatically changes how we should approach what's happening and what Jesus is trying to teach us today. Okay, so let's take a look at who Jesus is, is teaching to here. So verse 1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners... We're all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, first and foremost, we have, we have over here, you're going to have tax collectors and sinners. And over here, you're going to have scribes and Pharisees. And we're going to start with the tax collector. Um, the tax collector, if anybody grew up in church, we, we normally think tax collector and we think Zacchaeus, right? Anybody remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree, so the Lord, he wanted to see. That, that, that's, that's Zacchaeus. And everybody thinks Zacchaeus is just this cute, wee little man tax collector. But the reality is, as one pastor would say it, let me explain to you why, te- why Zacchaeus was not a cute little man. He was actually scum of the earth and at best should deserve to be burned alive. That's how tax collectors were viewed in this culture, and here's why. Um, Zacchaeus was an Israelite who purchased the right from Rome to raise funds for this oppressive occupying army over his people, over his own countrymen, right? So he's helping fund the Romans staying in Israel. So this is ultimately what he's doing is he's helping fund and contribute to this army that is responsible for the brutal death of hundreds of thousands of people, including his own. I know of no cultural equivalent to this. This is a wicked human being. There is no cultural equivalent to the wickedness that was a tax collector in Jerusalem. It would be like you living next door to somebody who single-handedly funded the murder of your loved ones, and it be legal. But yet, as crazy as it sounds, the scum of the earth, now we understand the tax collector is, they're drawing near to Jesus. They're drawing close to Christ. And then we have the sinner, right? We have the tax collector and the sinner. Now, for us to understand sinner here in the text, we have to get out of our Western, South, Bible Belt um, mindset that we've always learned it to be. Because here, like, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, everybody knows you're just supposed to say you're a sinner. That's what you do. But here, culturally, sinner wasn't just something you said. It was a class of people. It was a class of people who could have... um, a reparable, a reparable job, a job that nobody like was greatly looked down upon, like a prostitute or a stripper or a tax collector um, or a slave trader. Um, or you had um, some type of disease or disability that the Jews viewed as a curse from God upon your life. So if you remember when the Pharisees would drag people to Jesus and they could be blind or lepers or have an issue of blood, they would bring him to Jesus and they would think, okay, Jesus, was it... His, was it his sin or is it, parents, or is it his parents' sin? And Jesus responded, neither, dummy. It's so God be glorified. He would heal them and then make the Pharisees look like a bunch of fools. But these are, these are your two people here. You have tax collectors and sinners. Both 
absolutely ostracized from society and hated by the majority of the culture. And as we talked about our own, our own worldview and our approach towards Jesus, here's something that we also need to know about theirs. They would have been taught from the day they gasped their first breath that they were outcasts, that they were unlovable. They were taught that God had judged them and that there was absolutely no forgiveness for them, no love for them, no hope for them, and that one day they were going to have a meeting with God and it was not going to go well. This is how they view God, and this is how they think God views them. They're not allowed in the church. They're not allowed to read the word of God. They're absolutely exiled from the religious life of Israel. Yet, for whatever reason, they're drawing near to Jesus. Because you finally have somebody speaking the truth of God, knowing the full character of God, who actually is God, and they're drawing near to him. So that's one side. You have, like, varsity sinner over here. And now we talk about the scribes and the Pharisees, okay? Scribes and the Pharisees are like your super awesome varsity Christian evangelical. They got 12 fish on the back of their car. They only listen to Christian music 100% of the time on all of their devices. They have this type of worldview where they, they, they feel like they're so morally upright that they have gained a type of favor from God that makes it to where he, they get, have special love from him that he won't show to other people. So because they're too bad, and we're really awesome, he's going to show extra amount of love, attention, and favor towards us rather than them. And these are your two worldviews. You have one that says, God hates me because of my works. You have another side that says, God loves me a lot because of my works. And now knowing this and considering this, let's jump into the passage. First, uh, parable of the lost sheep. I just want to cover this. That's the first one. Every majority of people have heard this. You have... A shepherd who has 100 sheep, one gets away, so he leaves the 99 to go get the one. He goes and gets it. And then from the, the lesson he teaches from it is verse 7. He says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Just to let you know, that's one of the sentences Jesus said that got him killed. Because here's basically what Jesus is trying to communicate. is like, hey, scribes and Pharisees, you need to, see, you need to understand this. God takes more joy when one of these people who you consider scum of the earth deserve to be burned alive. He takes more joy when they repent, when they come back to the Lord, than over you standing in your self-righteousness and your belief that you need no repentance. That you've got it all figured out. That's one of the sentences that got him killed. I mean, remember, the tax collectors and the sinners weren't the ones who murdered Jesus. It was the scribes and the Pharisees. Because Jesus kept challenging their traditions, their way of thinking, and their power time and time again. Because they loved their traditions, their man-made traditions, and their religion more than the true character of God. And what he actually had to say and why he said it as revealed in his word. And then you see the parable of the lost coin. Where this woman's got plenty of money, but she loses some of it and she freaks out. And she flips her whole house upside down just to find this lost coin. Jesus trying to... like. Um, explain to the tax collector and the sinner, saying like, no, no, you're not too far gone. God will flip up every part of his house. Even when he has enough money, he still cares about you. Even though he possesses all the power in the world, he still cares about your heart. And then we get to the story of the prodigal son, which we all know, love, and adore. Um, verse 11, Jesus still speaking, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. Just so you know, that's why this, if you read on your bulletins, and the, the, the title of the sermon is called the, 
the two sons um, because uh, this story's got hijacked by the younger brother. And in reality is there's two of them. There's two of them. And I want you to hang on to that because we need to pay attention to both brothers this morning for this to make any sense for us. All right. So moving through the text. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a share of property that is coming to me. So here's what's happening right here. You have a younger brother who is approaching dad and saying, Dad, I'm tired of living under your house. I want money, and I want to leave. But for this to happen, he has to get his inheritance. How does an inheritance work? Somebody has to die first, right? Somebody passes away, then you get the inheritance, and then you go. So for the son to do this and to approach him in this way, he's basically saying, Hey, Dad, I wish you were dead. I'm tired of living under your house. Give me my money now so I can go do what I want to do. It's kind of jacked up, right? But what, 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 what surprises me and I just think is absolutely crazy, more than the son having the audacity to say what he said, is how the father responds. He gives him what he wants. It says, and he divided his property between them. He gave him his portion of the inheritance. And what I think the Father is communicating in that moment is a lot like what we see in Romans 1 of, of God's, or God saying to us, like, okay, if you think this is what's going to make you happy, if this is what you think is going to give you the fullness of life, fullness of joy, fully satisfied, I'm going to let you find out for yourself. I'm going to let you find out for yourself. So the son gathers his stuff, and he leaves. Um, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So much happening in one verse. So you have the son leaving his, his, his little, little old town thing, like leaving little old Wimberley. And he's going to just some crazy place, some crazy town, like, like some people think Austin or Vegas or New York or L.A., right? And it says he squandered his property on reckless living. So basically he used his money just to become the man. Everybody knew who he was. Everybody, if they knew who he was, they wanted to be him. He had a million followers on Instagram. He's already caught every Pokemon on Pokemon Go. Like, he, he's got it. He's got it down. And you even see farther than the text, he wanted to live the party life and he even spent his money on prostitutes. This is what he wanted. This is what he chased after. This is what he thought would make him happy. But then you see a severe famine comes in the country. He loses all of his money and it, beco- it becomes, it gets to a point where he's in need. Severe famine, shortage of food, no money, can't pay for it. Now he's like, I'm, I'm broken, I'm going to die. So he hires himself out to a farmer, and the farmer gives him the job, yeah, you can feed my pigs. And he says he gets so desperate, he gets so low, that he longs to eat the exact same food that the pigs were eating, because nobody would give him anything. He went from, hey, Dad, I wish you were dead. Yay, I got everything I ever wanted. It's all gone, and now I'm dying. In verse 17, it says, He comes to himself. He came to himself, and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he, he comes to himself, and it's like, at least my dad's servants are not dying, and they have food on the table. I'm going to go home and make a speech and pray he doesn't kill me. So he, he, goes, he goes back. He, he goes back, and he rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father sees him and felt compassion and ran, ran towards him. Now, if I was the son at this point, I would be freaking out, because the last thing I would remember is like, hold on, Dad. 
I told you you were dead. I essentially gave you the finger and said, I I wish I want to live life my own way and do it my own way. And you're running towards me. Like, I'm going to think like, okay, he's going to kill me. This was a mistake. I was better with the pigs. And it says, no, no, no. The father ran towards him and he embraced him. He embraced him and he kissed him. And what we need to understand about that is you've got to remember where the son's coming from. He just spent all of his time with pigs. He smells awful. He's full of mud and dirt and grime. But the father takes it all away. Even kisses him. He takes in all of the shame, all of the guilt, all of the mistakes, all of the dirt. And the son even tries to get a speech out. He says, Father, I'm sending it to heaven. I'm sending it to you. No longer will really be called your son. And the father's like, shut up. And he, and he calls the servant and says, hey, bring the best robe. And he tells the servants, bring the best robe. You know what's crazy about that? The best robe in the house would be the father's. The same father who said, Dad, I wish you were dead. He said, no, no, bring my robe and put it on him. And that's symbolism of, no, 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 you're welcome back. You are forgiven. You are loved. But then he says, no, no, put a ring on his hand. And what's special about the ring is the ring would have a family crest on it, symbolizing, no, 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 you're not coming back as just a servant. You're coming back as my son. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are still my child. And they say, put shoes on his feet. And then he says, kill the fattened calf. Get the best food we have. We're going to party. We're going to celebrate because my son was dead and now he was alive. He was lost and now he is found. That's the story of the prodigal son, right? That's the one we all know and love and grew up hearing. And it's a beautiful story because all of us in our own way can relate to that. We are all in our own way prodigals. We've ran from God in some way, shape, or form. We ran from God thinking like, okay, you, you might give me something, but I'm going to find better joy in life and satisfaction in a girl or in a guy or in a marriage or in a job or in money in success in fame in glory in sports in my kids. We've all ran from God in our own way or your story might literally be like the prodigal son. And what's beautiful about the story is no matter where you're at, no matter where you're running, God is always calling and saying, hey, you didn't go too far. You're always welcome back. You're always welcome back. But now we need to talk, we need to move forward here, because that's usually where the story stops. But we need to move forward here. We need to talk about the older brother. We can't leave him out. And I firmly believe our church needs to talk about the older son. So verse 25. His older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he's he's coming back from working his tail off all day, coming back home, and then he, he hears the music and the dancing. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I think that's a party because he hears the music and the dancing. And I know we're Baptists, but I know it's his dancing, but it's okay. Don't freak out. It's just the Bible. It's okay. It's all right. But this is what he comes back to. He's like, hold on, what's going on at the house? And he calls a servant over and says, like, hey, what, what's going on? And then the servant tells him about his brother. He said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. Now, you would think the brother would be like, yes, my brother's home. Yes, my, my little brother I can pick on now for the rest of my life. Yes. It's not what happened. It's not what happened. Verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in, and his father came out and entreated him. So the older brother is furious that his, that his younger brother has come home. The father hears of this, comes out and, and treats him. He tries to talk, to talk to him, and the father is just like, hey, what, what are you doing? 
Don't do this. Why, why won't you come inside? Why won't, you, why won't you celebrate with us? Don't do this. Don't stay out here. Why are you so angry? And then you see the younger brother respond. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat. I don't know why you want that, but sure. That I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And what Keller points out about this text is you don't know if the older brother comes in or not. You never know if he stayed outside in his self-righteousness and his pride or if, he, or if he ever came inside. And now looking at the story, I think it, it, it's clear who Jesus is paralleling the sons to. For the younger son, he's obviously, he's obviously the, the tax collector and the sinner who he's trying to communicate over and over again, you're not too far gone. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, God wants you. He loves you. He's, he's saying, come celebrate. We want to kill the fattened calf. We want to hear the music and the dancing. Come home. And then he's trying to communicate to the scribes and the Pharisees, look, you thought you had it the whole time, but this, your actions right now by refusing to come inside reveals you missed it. You may have figured out the religion and tradition, but you missed the grace and mercy and forgiveness. And something I, I just pondering on this, like it, a thought came to my, my mind and the older brother misses it if he doesn't go inside because he thinks the whole time that this, that self-righteousness and, and pride is going to get him into the house, but it doesn't. Self-righteousness and pride doesn't get you into the house, it rather it keeps you from the celebration. And this is what Jesus is trying to teach. This is what he's trying to teach. But the question I want to ask now is who are you? Are you the are you the older brother or are you the younger brother? Which one do you relate to most? Are you one who, who can relate to the prodigal who feels God has kind of abandoned them and doesn't want them? Like you're not like the Christian type, not the church going type. Like you're not the person who runs to God, you run from God, and you need to Realize and remember, no, 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 you're not too far gone. Or are you the older brother who believes he's so self-righteous and, and has the tradition part figured out that he might need God a little bit, but just because you're supposed to say so? This is important. And I don't want you just to assume this because I know reading the story, it might, it might seem like, hey, the prodigal son seems like the good guy in this one. The younger son seems like the good guy in this one. We probably want to be him. No, I, don't, I don't want you just to assume and to guess. I want you to be honest with yourself. I don't think it's too much to ask. But to help bring some clarity here, I want to, Keller, provide some helpful um, identifiers to help us be able to maybe identify one way or another. So the first one we're going to talk about is an older brother to make yourself feel better. My wife has younger brother tendencies, but she primarily identifies with the older brother. So just know you're not alone. It's okay. Um, but the older brother has, is more of the type A, straight and narrow, um, perfectionist, likes rules and wants more rules to follow them type of personality. That is the older brother. Um, the older brother likes religion. 
and man-made tradition more than they enjoy what the Bible truly has to say more often than not. They like tradition and religion more than what the Bible actually has to say. So practically, this might mean that you have certain opinions on things as simple as clothes in culture or in the church, or on music within culture within the church, or social interactions within culture and within the church that might fit perfectly into your paradigm and in your tradition, but completely fly against what the Bible has to say about the issues. It's something you believe in that you like and you enjoy because it better fits the God you're trying to create, the God you think he should be, rather than the God of who he really is and the one who's already established an economy and adhering to his structure. The older brother's attitude in life is this belief that my good deeds make God okay with me. Is this belief that, hey, hey me, me, and God are, me and God are good because I'm a good person. Which absolutely, I, I, I think it's insane. Because Galatians 2.21 tells us that, that if, if you and I could get good with God, that we could figure out a relationship with God by ourselves, we can go to heaven just by being good people all on our own, why did Jesus even die? If righteousness were through the law, getting right with God, being okay with God, was possible through being good, Christ died for no purpose. I mean, if you and I could just figure it out by being good, why would Jesus leave his throne in heaven, suffer through having to be perfect in our broken, sinful world, and then be murdered ruthlessly on a cross if you and I could figure it out by ourselves? Yet this is the tendency and the leniency of the older brother's personality. Third, how does the older brother respond to failure or when giving in to sin? The older brother usually responds in despair because they have this personality that God views them and views others, his affections towards them, is all based on their works. So God loves me or hates me depending on how well I'm doing at life, which is also short of the gospel because Isaiah 64, 64 6 reminds us, no, no, no. Our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. They're like filthy rags. Maybe a better translation would be as if you just went to the bathroom, held up the, the toilet paper you just used, and say, Hey, God, is this enough? Can we be friends now? Can I get into heaven? It's gross. And it's so short of the gospel. It's this belief. No, no, no. It's all about my works. And when you do that, you deny the finished work of Christ on the cross. How does the older brother turn to God? I think this is probably the saddest part, in my opinion, for the older brother. But the older brother fails to see the need to turn to the father because they believe their good works are what saves them. The older brother fails to see the need to turn to the father because they believe their good works are what saves them. So they, 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 they think they're really good and they think they need some God because that's what you're supposed to say. When in reality, they think they're good enough and that God is just, or Christianity or church is just this thing you're supposed to do on the side because that's what good people do. But they don't really, real, they don't realize the full depravity and wickedness of their sin and the evil it brings out in our bones. A couple weeks ago, I was having lunch with a friend um, and we were, just, we were just catching up and he was sharing me about this, um, this program he just went to, went through this past year about just about theology and learning things about the Bible um, and, and I asked him, I was like, okay, what, what, what was your biggest takeaway from all of this? And he said, man, one of the biggest things that got me from the beginning was realizing like how sinful I am. 
how depraved I am. Which is crazy because he's one of the nicest guys I've ever met in my life. Like you would never think him calling himself wicked, evil, wrong, or bad, or sinful. You, you wouldn't think that. But the reality is through the Holy Spirit working out in his heart and in his life, he was reasoning, no, 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 I am sinful. My sin has made me utterly wicked and horrible. And in the statement that I, that I remember, he says, like, man, I'm, I'm like Hitler. So, no, 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 scratch that. I'm worse than Hitler. Because that's what a true view of the depravity of sin would look like. You are the worst. Or like Paul, the writer of the majority of the New Testament, calls himself the chief of sinners, the best of all sinners. And he wrote the majority of the New Testament. But the older brother denies this belief because they think, like, you know, I, I, I need God in my life. I know I should, probably for morality. But I don't believe I'm that bad. I don't believe I'm that bad. So that's the older brother. Now, moving on to the younger brother. Um, and I have older brother tendencies, but I, I primarily identify with the younger brother. The younger brother is a rebel, as you can see in the text. But also, just to give you an example um, for me, uh, say, like, in high school, I, I was the type of personality where... If I was cleaning my room and then I heard my mom from down the hall say, clean your room, I would stop. Even though I was already cleaning it, all of a sudden, just because she told me to, I stopped. I was like, nope, it's not in my power anymore. I can't, I can't do it anymore. It's not, it's, it doesn't work that way. But that was just my rebellion. That was my sinfulness. Um, the younger brother's attitude in life is this idea that their pleasure is their salvation. Their pleasure is their salvation. So whatever pleases me most in the moment, what it makes me mo most comfortable right now in this moment, that's what saves me. I don't want to look later. I want what pleases me right now. The younger brother responds to failure or when giving in to sin through this idea of cheap grace. Meaning, it's a way of thinking like, oh, I'm going to be forgiven anyway, right? Might as well just keep sinning. It's this idea of like, well, God's going to forgive me. Who cares? Or I, dude, I, I prayed a prayer way back when at a camp. I, I was baptized in church a long time ago. Me and God are square. We're good. But the reality is Romans 6.1 says clearly, if that's your belief system, you missed it. You don't have authentic faith in Christ. There's no such thing as cheap grace. How does the younger brother respond to the father? They only respond to the father when they hit rock bottom. We see that clearly in the text. And that's, also, that's my story. Like I was the type of person who, who liked churchy things, but the reality is I was just running from it, running from it, running from it. And if I was affiliated with it, it's because I was supposed to have made my parents happy. But in high school, I ran to glory in sports. I ran to the party. I ran to girls. All of these things because I thought it would make me happy. It would make me satisfied. It would fulfill my life. But after running to those things and just actually receiving guilt and shame from it and then going to five funerals too many of family and friends that I, that I love in high school. I came out in May of my senior year just on my face and God, I've, I've been everywhere and it's not enough. You're all I have left. I took rock bottom for me. But at least, at least he, he brought me home. But sometimes that's what it takes for the younger brother. So which one do you relate to most? This is important because it, it shows how what, what your next steps are from here. Do, do you take steps of repentance, of being able to say, like, God, I, I know I've run, I've run so far, but I want to come back. I want to come back home. Because for those of you who think you're too far gone, you're not. You're not. 
And just because I love you, I need to say this to some of you, just in case you believe this. Some people think they've outsinned the grace of God, and I need to tell you, get over yourself. That in itself is a form of self-righteousness. This belief that, oh, I can outsend God, there's no way I can be saved. Remember, again, the writer of the majority of the New Testament murdered Christians. And he wrote the majority of the New Testament. You're never too far from God. He's running out to you on the road and saying, come home. Or you could be on the other side. Where, where God is calling us to repent from our self-righteousness and our tradition and maybe a God that we've made up and asking us to actually come meet him for who he is, a God of mercy and grace and forgiveness. But no matter where you land, I want to I point something out here as we, as, we, as we wrap up. The problem with the older brother and the younger brother is that ultimately they didn't want God, but they really wanted anything that they could get from him. They didn't want God, they wanted his stuff. And you can see this in the text. 15, verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Or in verse 29, older brother now. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat. Both brothers didn't actually love their father. Both of them. They just wanted whatever they could get from him. One rebelled and said, I can get it just every once in a while by asking. And the other one said, man, if I work really hard, I can get whatever I want. But ultimately, both didn't love the Father. And this isn't too foreign for us. Because I think there's plenty of people in the room today who don't really love God. But you'll approach him and do Christian things because you want the blessing or you want the favor. Or the, the famous one is, I just want to go to heaven one day. But I think this quote from, from Piper will really help us be able to get some peace on where we're at honestly with this. It says, the critical question for our generation and for, and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the desired activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasure you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? That's an interesting question, right? I mean, it's, it's perfection. No human conflict, no natural disasters. But Jesus isn't there. Do you still want to go to heaven? How you answer that question deeply reveals your relationship with Christ. Because every time I read that, I still remember that. I read that in a library on UT's campus as a sophomore. And it, it stuck with me ever since because my heart responds every time. If Jesus isn't in heaven, then heaven's a waste of time. When I die, I want to go be where Jesus is. He's what makes heaven beautiful. He's what makes heaven glorious. He's why we're here. He is what we've centered our lives around as a church. He is why we read through this book because we want to know him. We want to worship him. We want to love him. We want to pursue him. It always comes back to Christ. So if Jesus is in heaven, I just want to go where Jesus is. But if you're answering this right now and saying, if you're honest, I, don't, I could care less if Jesus was in heaven or not. Brother, sister, I want, to, I want to be honest with you. I want to say, you missed it. But I don't say that to condemn you. I say that you're, you're not too far gone. Come back. Come meet God to get God. You don't need his stuff. The greatest treasure in the universe is himself. Because you fit right in with the younger brother and the older brother. Because that's what, that's what happened. They both ran. 
They both thought they could just get things from God and, and in their own way. They rebelled. They all, they both ran from the Father in their own way, but they realized, no, 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 everything I want in life, coming back to the Father, joy today, satisfaction today, life today, not just in eternity. It requires coming back to the house. It requires reconciling to the Father, but the only way to reconcile with the Father is through knowing Jesus. And that's what Jesus is just trying to communicate to everybody in the crowd. It's not about how far you've ran or all the good things you've done. It's about the finished work of Christ on the cross. It's not about what you've done or what you haven't done. It's about what Jesus already did for us in our place. That's the gospel. Jesus is, is trying to tell us that our joy and our happiness in life, it's not found in the gifts of God. It's found in God himself. It's found in God himself. It's always, always, always all about the gospel. St. Corinthians 5.21 says it like this. For our sake, for us, because of our brokenness, because of our depravity, God made Jesus. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin. God made Jesus our sin. All of our rebellion and all of our self-righteousness. Jesus took upon all of it on himself. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. So that we might spend eternity with Jesus one day. So that we might have life and joy and pleasure in Jesus today and tomorrow and for the rest of our lives. I just want to close with this. There's something really interesting that's, that the, the father says. He describes his son when he comes home as somebody who went from dead to a lie who was lost and who was found. And church, I know there's a lot of people in here today who are, who are good people. Good people. But if I were to be honest with you, I don't, I don't want to know if you're good. I want to know if you're alive. Because there's plenty of good people who won't see heaven. I want to know if you've gone from dead and your trespasses and sins to now alive and breathing in Christ. I want to know if you were lost and now you have been found, that you were blind and now you see, that you were deaf and now you hear, that you were mute and now you speak. Because that's the invitation. That's the gospel. That Jesus made a way for you. He paid it all for you on your behalf. All he's asking for you to do is come back. If you're the prodigal son, if you're the younger brother, come home. If you're the older brother, come inside. But the invitation is the same. Jesus' cross welcomes the younger brother and the older brother. So church, wherever you land, wherever you are. Let's lay to rest the God we think he is and the God we wish he was and the God we think he should be. Let's come home and meet and celebrate with the God of who he says he is, he is to be. Because he's the one who saves us and he's the one we need. Younger brother, come home. Older brother, come inside. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for the honesty of your word, the transparency of your word. God, may, may, we, may we rightly repent. No matter where we're at on the map, God, help us just be able to be honest and humble enough to say, God, we need you.
We've ran away in our own way. We've made you up in our own minds. But God, we want to meet who you are today. We want to be reminded that the gospel says no matter where you've been, no matter where you are now, Jesus welcomes you in the house. Not because of what you've done or anything that you could ever do, but because of what he's already accomplished for us on our behalf. Jesus, remind us, if we have a little view of our sin, we're going to have a really small view of you. So God, help us just to understand we are wicked and we are broken. And praise be to you that we have a Savior bigger than all of it, who saved us, who's restored us, who's healed us, who's brought us back to life, who's welcomed us home. Help us to have that life and that joy, not just someday in heaven, but right now, today and tomorrow and for the rest of our lives. To you be the glory, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.